So the time has come. We are now in the final week of our 10th anniversary crowdfunding campaign. And I, I promise I won't take up much of your time, but I just want to emphasize how urgently we need your support. Listener support is the most significant way that we fund our journalism here at CanadaLand. It's what helps pay for all of our reporting and the salaries of the excellent folks who make the shows here. And, you know, whenever I talk about CanadaLand with my friends or people who aren't really familiar with our work, there's one thing that I always emphasize. Just how incredible the people who work here are. And for most of the people, you'll never hear their voices on a show. But I'm telling you, the passion they have for what they do is off the charts. And so when you're debating whether or not you should finally just make the leap and sign up as a supporter, just remember that you're helping all of us earn a living and bring you great podcasts. So if anything from the last five years of Commons has moved you or made you look at an issue differently, please consider supporting us. You can support Commons and CanadaLand today by heading to canadaland.com join to become a supporter. Back in 1977, Michael Kropfeld got a call from a friend who had moved down to California. He hadn't heard from him in months. And he was planning to stay, and if I had a chance, why don't I come down and visit? As it turned out, I had time, you know, vacation time from where I was working, and I said, okay, fine, I'll come down, let's go camping in the Redwoods. His friend, Benji Carroll, was a teacher who had drifted down the West Coast in search of a job. Michael was a childcare worker assisting kids with intellectual disabilities in Montreal. So a trip to sunny California to visit a friend sounded pleasant. Benji told him that he was working for something called the Creative Community Project. But when Michael arrived at their headquarters in San Francisco, he was told that Benji wasn't there. Instead, he was staying at something called the Ideal Ranch, about 50 miles outside the city. He was told that he should go meet Benji there. He arrived at the ranch in the middle of the night and found a place to sleep. The next morning, he awoke to the sound of singing all around him. And when he emerged from the tent, his friend Benji was amongst the singers, but Michael barely recognized him. He had left with a long beard and long hair, and here he was clean-shaven and with short hair. It was kind of like, oh, what's going on here? That was only the beginning. Over the next few days, Michael was surrounded by other young people who seemed almost deliriously happy. They complimented him endlessly and invited him into sharing circles where they'd hold hands, stare into each other's eyes, and talk about their deepest traumas and their greatest hopes. Michael had just come to meet his friend, but he found this community intoxicating in a way. Because I did come back very kind of enamored by the whole experience. It was like, wow. People were nice. The idea of trying to build a, a better world. I mean, this is like you're talking the 70s, 60s, 70s, the communal lifestyle. This was very kind of popular. And it was very exciting, you know, to think that, okay, maybe here were people who are trying to actually do something because they talked about clinics, schools, food giveaway, all kinds of different projects that were, you know, very positive. The people in this community said they were committed to studying a variety of spiritual teachers. But they all seemed strangely focused on one specific individual, the Reverend Sun Myung Moon. 
a Korean man who claimed to be the Messiah and was the leader of the Unification Church, a fast-growing new religious movement. Michael had heard about the man, but when he asked the other people at the camp if they were members of the church, they downplayed the connection. She said, no, 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 no. This is one of the many people whose works we study. Michael spent 10 days there and was enjoying his time, but he had to return to Canada for work. His fellow campers tried to dissuade him. And uh, I said, no, I have to. You know, I made a commitment you know, to job. And he said, well, you can make a commitment to come back. And so he promised to return. But when he got back home, the spell was broken. Another friend of his had been researching the strange camping community and confirmed that it was indeed an outpost of the Unification Church. Members of the Unification Church, better known by their nickname, the Moonies, were utterly devoted to the Reverend Moon. Despite Moon's ultra-conservative politics, a large number of former hippies ended up in his movement. And they used a very high level, what some people say, deception. Others would say very simply, well, they lied. Heavenly deception was a term that they used. The Moonies even had a term for the relentless positivity and attention that Michael experienced at the Ideal Ranch. They called it love bombing. Michael and his friends worried that Benji had fallen into a cult. So they decided on a radical course of action. They were going to kidnap and deprogram their friend. We felt that we, we owed it to him knowing what we knew and knowing what I had gotten through and what we had found out about the group. They lured him to a meeting, and then they forcibly spirited him away to a safe house where they held him against his will. For two days, a so-called deprogrammer worked on Benji, and it seemed to do the trick. I mean, he's very happy. It worked out well. Yeah, yeah. No, he ended up going back to school. He became a physiotherapist and you know, worked for a number of years as a physiotherapist. The whole episode was just the beginning for Michael Kropfeld. He went on to establish Canada's most significant anti-cult organization, making him a partisan in the so-called cult wars. But what he didn't realize at the time was how much fighting in those wars would end up changing him. I'm Archie Mann, and this is Commons. More after the break. Stephen Kent was studying at the University of Maryland in 1970 when the United States invaded Cambodia. Campuses across the country exploded in protest. We had National Guard soldiers on my campus, outside my dorm window, and so on. You know, tear gas flying. Protests and activism were a fact of life on American university campuses in 1970. But just two years later, Stephen noticed that something had changed. His friends and his peers weren't going to nearly as many marches and actions. Religion, not politics, had become the order of the day. What was occurring for youth culture was an infusion of gurus and swamis and enlightened masters and spiritual guides and spiritual teachers. They were flooding, flooding youth culture. Stephen was also spiritually curious. He dabbled in meditation and yoga and was interested in what these teachers had to say. 
and there's one in particular that stands out to him, the Guru Maharajji. Maharajji was one of the many Indian spiritual teachers who found audiences in the West during those years. But what made him stand out was that he was only 16 years old. He had become a sensation in the West after he gave a speech at Glastonbury in 1971. Because I've got that word, I've got that knowledge, I've got that thing, and I can say you all that I can help mankind and everybody of you by giving that knowledge. When Stephen arrived at the church where Maharajji was speaking, it was overflowing with people. So we went there and it was packed. It was, I think, a Methodist church. And when I say packed, I mean packed. I was sitting on top of myself. I had my hips curved, almost in pain, to squeeze in more room. Before he came out, someone said, oh, does anyone have a car? We forgot the pillow for Maharaji's lotus feet. So somebody got a car and they went, I don't know, somewhere and got the pillow for him. Finally, Maharaji came out. And it was, a, it was ridiculous. As far as I was concerned, it was absolutely, it was absurd. Stephen was absolutely perplexed. Maharaji's speech seemed filled with empty platitudes to him, but the packed church hung on his every word. Afterwards, Stephen got a ride back home with a woman and her grandmother. We're riding back in the car, and the daughter and the grandmother are devotees of Maharaji. I'm listening to them have a conversation in the front seat about considering whether they're going to come back the next day and kiss his lotus feet. We'd been in the same room, saw the same experience, and our interpretations of it was completely different and opposite. It, it bothered me for years. I couldn't figure it out. And finally, when I went back to graduate school uh, two years later and transferred very quickly into an MA program in Hinduism, I found an article. And it was about followers who worship Maharaji, and it put the veneration of him in a cultural context of extreme youth frustration coming out of what they thought were the failed political protests from the late 1960s. The general theme with a lot of these groups in the 1970s was that if you change yourself, then you change the world. Consequently, there had been a cultural shift away from political protest, which actually go after the institutions to a focus on purifying oneself in order to attain world peace. If everybody transforms, then peace will occur. This explosion in spiritual movements in the 1970s led to the creation of a new academic field, with serious scholarly work being done into understanding these sects, cults, and new religious movements. And Stephen Kent was right there in the thick of it. But even in those early days, a huge divide was appearing in the young field. On one hand, there were people who thought that these groups were mostly harmless and should be treated the same as established religions. Others were more critical. It was Stephen's experience with one particular group that led him to choose the latter path. I got involved in a really deep and silent network of people. This was the, the network of people who were studying Scientology. Scientology at the time had an earned reputation for being very aggressive and hostile toward critics. And these people were afraid to speak up. When they finally trusted me, when they finally realized I, I wasn't a plant or a spy, they started telling me things and giving me information. Stephen would become a leading critic of Scientology, the Children of God, and a number of other groups 
and one of the most prominent academics associated with the anti-cult movement. Today, he's a sociology professor at the University of Alberta, but his views and his methods have made him controversial in his field because the scholars who study these groups continue to be divided into two very distinct camps. This fight over how to think about and study these groups has been dubbed the cult wars. And it's fought not only in academic journals and conference seminars, but in the press, in the courts, and in legislative assemblies. Scholars are enlisted by either anti-cult forces or religious and ideological groups in high-stakes battles that can have enormous consequences. This scholastic struggle has decided custody battles and prison sentences, and even decades after it began, the two sides remain starkly divided. They can't even agree on what we should call these groups. A lot of academics were very favorable toward these groups. And a debate broke out between whether the proper name for these groups was new religious movements or cults. Now, there's issues with both terms, and a lot of current academics still use new religious movements. The trouble with that term, though, is threefold at least. First, a lot of these groups aren't new. And when does a group stop being new? I mean, Scientology started in 1950. This is, what, 70 years later? Is it still a new religion? Religious was also a problem. Many of these groups were multifaceted transnational organizations, only one part of which was religious. And then movements. A movement technically is an effort toward achieving particular social goals, and a movement can have different organizations in it. And so to call all these groups movements covers some of them. The Unification Church is a movement. Charles Manson was a single group. And so to call that a movement doesn't really capture what the group was about. Now, the trouble with cults is that it became a, a negative aspersion against groups. If I wanted to have any credence with the groups I was studying, I could not use the term cult. According to Stephen, the organized opposition to so-called cults isn't new. He traces it all the way back to 186 BCE. The reason for starting in 186 BCE is to look at the anti-cult outbreak that occurred in ancient Rome regarding the worshipping of Dionysus, or Bacchus. The report that we have is written by the Roman historian Livy, and it's a fascinating story. His account says that an unnamed Greek came to the Italian region that included Rome, who was a conjurer and performed rituals, and he started performing secret Dionysian rites at night. First, there were ceremonies just to women, and then eventually men joined. As the secret rites grew, they were involving feasts, involving food and wine, and they degenerated into orgies. These accounts leaked out to Roman government officials. They launched actually an investigation of the Bacchanal, held a public meeting, and warned citizens about it, and started arresting followers throughout Rome. One figure says there were 7,000 people involved in the Bacchanal worship throughout society. The people who just went through the ceremony but didn't do anything were convicted and taken away in chains. People who 
participated in the Bacchanal ceremonies were actually murdered. So this is the first account in history about an anti-cult movement. But Kent says that the modern anti-cult movement started in the 1960s with the horrors of the Manson murders. A wandering band of members of a so-called religious cult with a leader they called Jesus has had three of its followers arrested in the investigation of the murder of Sharon Tate and six others. In 69, Sharon Tate and friends, five people, were killed in her home. She was eight and a half months pregnant. A vicious murder, vicious stabbings and so on. And then the next night, the La Bianca couple, husband and wife, in another part of, of Los Angeles. Manson and his followers finally were arrested in December of 1969. They went on trial in 1970, and convictions came in 1971. What was so unnerving to a lot of people is that Manson had these devout female followers. Three female followers got convicted with him. One turned state's evidence against the group. But he had female followers outside the courthouse through the whole trial, and then for a year afterwards, doing protests against Manson's conviction. So people looked at this, and they just didn't know what was going on. The Manson murders and the explosion of new religions in the early 1970s led to a feeling of unease amongst many people. The first anti-cult groups were formed by concerned parents whose adult children had joined groups like the Children of God in Scientology. And throughout the 1970s, major events kept cults on the front page. In 1974, Patty Hearst, the daughter of a newspaper mogul, was kidnapped by a group called the Symbionese Liberation Army. There's been a big kidnapping on the West Coast. The victim is Patricia Hurst, the daughter of newspaper executive Randolph Hurst and a granddaughter of the legendary William Randolph Hurst. They kidnapped her on February 4th of 1974. By April 3rd, about two months later, she renounced her past life. She changed her name and she said that she had joined the Symbionese Liberation Army. And then a few weeks later in April, she robbed a bank. She got caught on security cameras. She finally got captured September 18th, 1975, and the trial began in, in early 1976. Now, the trial's important. Something happened in the trial that did not happen in the Manson trial. The defense was that Patty Hearst had been brainwashed. The people who were testifying on the part of Patty Hearst's defense were people like Robert J. Lifton, Louis Jocelyn West, and Margaret Singer all of whom had worked on returning American GIs after the Korean War who had been through these reindoctrination camps. They had studied brainwashing early, and the, the defense was arguing that Patty Hearst had been brainwashed. The argument didn't work. Patty Hearst got convicted. But its impact on families right across probably the world is that they said, that's what happened to my kid. Now I know what's happened to him, and I know the techniques that have to be used deprogramming to get him out. Anti-cult networks began to hire people to deprogram their loved ones. Now, a lot of the deprogrammings didn't involve coercion or manipulation and so on, but some involved kidnapping, restraining people for significant amounts of time, holding them against their will. I heard accounts about, in some situations, sexual assaults that went on and so on. And the panic around cults continued to grow. 
In 1977, the American government discovered that the Church of Scientology had been conducting an enormous espionage operation into multiple U.S. agencies. The IRS was a major target. Justice Department, Coast Guard. It turned out they had put spies in the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association. I mean, this was, it was the biggest civilian spy operation that ever occurred against the United States government. And it also was going on worldwide. I mean, Scientology was carrying on this operation, Operation Snow White, around the world. And then, in 1978, came the tragic events at Jonestown. Jim Jones, a religious leader who had built a commune of devoted followers in Guyana, orchestrated the murder-suicides of more than 900 people. We saw the first pictures Tuesday. The bodies seemed awful and orderly, not flung about like corpses after a battle, but neat, hand-in-hand sometimes, arms about each other's shoulders. So for the anti-cult group, Jonestown just solidified everything that they felt was going on. The worst-case scenarios of manipulation, brainwashing, control, and danger that a lot of these groups represented. Cults were now seen as a grave threat to the fabric of society. But at the same time as this anti-cult sentiment was reaching a fever pitch, a young woman in Canada was seeing something very different. Susan Palmer was interested in religion from an early age. My family came from five generations of Mormons, and our ancestors were polygamists who had to flee and cross the border into Canada so they wouldn't end up in jail. So I was really interested in alternative religions and how the state treats people with different family patterns and so on. She went on to do her master's in religious studies and began to research new religious movements in Montreal. This was incredibly fun, and at that time, you know, the research ethics boards weren't, like, bullying people, so I could go in and pretend to be a member. Mind you, I sort of fit in anyway, because I was that age, like, 27, hippie-ish, you know, so I looked like all of them. And it was really exciting. And the more time she spent with these groups, the more she found them to be interesting, even delightful. On one hand, they stimulate the imagination, because they introduce you to an imaginary world that's just completely... (laughs) you know, different, crazy. They're fun. Like, it's just like an adventure, you know. It's like an adventure of the imagination. So, and secondly, there was always part of me that was hoping I could be converted because I am what you call religiously musical. That's a term, you know, sociologists use. In other words, religion really appeals to me and I sort of feel the presence of God and so on. So I'm always hoping when I visit these groups that they're going to convert me. And they do, actually, maybe for 10 minutes. But then part of me, well, I'm really too old and decadent and whatever. I can never quite get into it. So I'm very sympathetic to people who are religious. And I really respect that. And I like to hear their stories. She recalls one group that she was immersed with back in the 70s that made her engage in some interesting rituals. We had to go on Saturday mornings to do spiritual work. Right? Sometimes it was just meditating or washing dishes behind our backs which isn't easy. But this time it was, um, we had to be hungry ghosts. And so we had to fast so we were hungry. And then we wore gray leotards and I think we wore grease sneakers and rubber gloves. They were headed to the grocery store to test their metal. And we waited for the grocery store to open. It's a big supermarket. And then it opened and we were told to sneak in and we weren't allowed to touch anything. And we must go around and look at our favorite food. 
and we should desire the food, but we weren't allowed to take anything or eat anything or touch anything. So I waited until this woman came in with her two kids. She was pushing a stroller, and this little boy was holding on the side, and she opened the door and went through, and then I sidled in after her. And it was really funny. The little boy looked at me and said, Mommy, who's that lady? <laughs> so I was loping around looking at, oh, croissant, chicken, ice cream, and like, oh, I'm so hungry. And then all of a sudden we, we heard someone at the cash say, who are these people? I think they're bikers. We better phone the police. And then our leader said, okay, abort mission. So we all had to run out and jump into the van. And then we tore off and we heard sirens approaching. <laughs> so that was really a gas. That was one of my high moments. Today, Susan Palmer is a professor at Concordia and the author of a number of books on new religious movements. And unlike Stephen Kent, Susan is on the other side of the cult wars. I'm actually really appalled at the way they're treated in the media. I mean, I'm appalled. I mean, I think in 50 years or so, people are going to look at those articles the way they look at the anti-gay articles in the 50s, you know what I mean? Or the anti-Jewish articles in the 40s in Germany. It'll be the same, really. I mean, because the way I see it, new religions are, well, they're just people who are searching for a different type of spirituality, and they're on a spiritual quest. And you can only really do something if you get together and do it with other people. It's like being a musician. You, know, you don't want to be a lone musician. You want to play with other people, right? She spent time studying a number of groups, like the Raelians, the Children of God, and the Nuwabian Nation. And the people in the mer- like to me, really normal people. In fact, they tend to be slightly nicer than people in everyday life. I just feel kind of relaxed when I'm in a, quote, cult setting. You know, I feel at home. If I don't go for a while, I sort of miss it. I feel, oh, there's something wrong. My life is really boring. I need a new fix. So I go visit a new religious movement. And she views the birth of numerous new religions as a sign of a healthy society. As Gordon Melton put it really nicely, he said, in a healthy democratic society, you will find a lot of new religious movements because there's a freedom. It's a natural thing to happen in society, like weeds in a garden. If you spray it too much, then you will find them, but the other flowers will die too. There's often very little common ground between scholars like Susan Palmer and Stephen Kent. Take the issue of brainwashing. Susan Palmer totally rejects the idea that people join or stay in these groups through the use of any kind of mind control techniques. And her views are shared by the majority of academics who study the issue. And while Stephen Kent acknowledges that there's some problems with the theory, he still sees some merit in the idea. The issue about brainwashing had been controversial, in part because when the people in the anti-cult movement adopted it, they used it to explain all conversions to these groups. And it's very clear that people join these groups for a variety of different reasons, some of which, which involved manipulation and coercion. Others were more or less voluntary. So brainwashing was a blunderbuss term. They shot it at everybody, and it didn't really work for them. Some groups have systematic programs to transform the beliefs and behaviors of people who get involved in them. The two groups specifically that I've published on that, in my opinion, had very clear brainwashing programs were Scientology and the Children of God. He points out that Scientology ran its own penal system for decades where people could be thrown into indoctrination camps for any number of reasons. Some people were in them for stretches of five years. They were cut off from contact with the outside world. They had limited, if any, contact with family members. 
They often worked eight hours a day and I think studied five hours a day, if I've got the times right. But long periods of work, long periods of study. And it was the study of the documents, the intense study of the documents that deviant Scientologists had to do in the Scientology programs that are representative of a brainwashing programs. They were systematic. They were laid out. They were processual. You know, there's a process involved. And it's all written down. So in those instances, I don't see any other term that's, that's applicable. Another major area of debate is the question of whether or not it's appropriate for researchers to rely on testimonials from people who have left these groups. This attack against apostate accounts is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most disreputable moments I've seen in, in my lifetime in the so- social sciences of religion. The position taken by a number of academics, including some very well-known ones, was that you cannot believe anything an apostate says, and it's indeed a waste of time to even talk to them, to listen to them. That statement sounds extreme, and it is, but that's what some of the academics were saying. Now, any reasonable person, any decent researcher knows, you have to take accounts from anybody and check them. See if you can get supportive information from other sources, from other people. It's called triangulation. That's the normal position. And even if you only get one account, it doesn't necessarily mean the account is wrong or fraudulent. But the position was to discredit all former members. Not all scholars who are sympathetic to new religious movements hold this belief, of course. Susan, for instance, quotes a number of ex-members and whistleblowers in her book on Raelians. And she also doesn't shy away from describing negative aspects of the groups that she studies. But she certainly starts off from a much more sympathetic place. Years ago, when Susan wrote a book on women in new religions, she included examples of negative experiences that women she studied had had in these groups. And then there was a review written by an anti-cultist, and she said, Susan Palmer, you know, has herself admitted that these things happen, and but she doesn't seem to realize that these poor women are being exploited and oppressed. But, but she's given us ammunition that we can use in our fight to, you know, control the cults. So if I admit something negative, I feel there's some anti-cultists out there saying, aha, I'm going to use that. Susan says that she doesn't take criticism from the anti-cult side too seriously. I always think it's funny. They say exactly the same thing about all of us. Like, we're secret Scientologists. We're cult apologists. We're paid by the cults to cover up, you know, their crimes. We're just stupid. We don't get it, you know? We don't get it. So, I mean, that's just what they say. I don't, I don't really care. I think it's funny, you know? But Stephen says that the debate can get pretty personal at times. My experiences with a few other academics has been unfortunate. There are those of us who can agree to disagree, but I've had some very unfortunate things happen to me by other academics. One instance came from a criticism who was an evangelical Christian who is both critical of a lot of groups, but also somewhat supportive of them because evangelical Christians sometimes get labeled as cults. This is in a publication, actually an article in a book, in which he says the comments by most Canadian academics is balanced. The one difference involves the, the statements made by Professor Stephen Kent. And if we look at the footnote, it's because Professor Stephen Kent uses accounts from apostates, from former members. So I've been criticized from saying that 
apostate accounts can be useful sources of research. He says that he's been disinvited to conferences because of his scholarly stands. But he believes that he's on the right side of the issue. There are a number of academics who really support these kind of critical positions that I've taken. I try to be moderate. I try to stick to the evidence. Western societies spend a great deal of time trying to make cultural space for authoritarian organizations. These organizations are very often are authoritarian. They're based upon the singular demands and claims of the leader. They have their own punishment systems. They restrict a whole range of human rights involving people's lives, rights of you know, labor, privacy, sexual d- decisions, and so on. These are dangerous groups. And the fact that they, they operate in democratic societies in anti-democratic manners is a concern for me. But Susan is equally convinced that her side is just. For her, it's a question of freedom of religion. I've become more and more aware of how people who are in, doing these very harmless activities and spiritual groups, and they're just looking for spiritual inspiration and meaning in life, you know, and higher, like tuning into the higher realities, you know. And most of them aren't, aren't in, in any way dogmatic or fundamentalist or anything like that. And they just, they just get slammed. Someone says they're a cult and, and you know, their life is ruined. It's, it's, it's amazing. Can't believe it. So it was in this context, while the cult wars were beginning to rage, that Michael Kropfeld, who you heard from at the top of the show, started Canada's first cult awareness group. InfoCult has been operating for almost half a century now. There are really very few of any other centers in the country dealing with this. There are a lot of academics, there are people who study it, but very few kind of situations where you have groups organized to kind of deal with this issue in terms of helping people with information and assistance. And initially, Michael was firmly on the anti-cult side. After all, the group's baptism had been kidnapping and deprogramming someone. I mean, we were much more, I say, uh, militant and kind of dogmatic in a kind of a simplified approach. And I think that came out out of our experiences and the initial contacts we had going through our friends' experience. Because what we had learned, and we tried to find out as much as we could when we first heard what was going on, we had contact with people and said, well, your friend is in a cult, he's being brainwashed, the only way you're going to get him out is by kidnapping and deprogramming. Well, the reality, as we learned shortly after, was no, that's not the only way people come out of these groups. But nonetheless, that kind of formed a bit of the initial kind of a position that we had in terms of viewing this as a very kind of more or less black and white, you know, cults are bad, and therefore you've got to oppose them and go against them. Over the years, InfoCult has been in touch with thousands and thousands of people involved or who have loved ones involved with so-called cults. And all of that experience has changed how Michael thinks about the subject. For me, it became something more of a kind of a a passion and interest. Because over the years, often I say it, you know, is I think it's kind of an area or an issue which, if you're open to it, raises more questions than answers. And then when you come to a point where you think you have all the answers, I think in many ways you become part of the problem. For instance, Michael says that even he can't define what a cult is. I've heard people you know, that I know in the area I work in say, we all know what a cult is. I think the reality is we all don't know what a cult is. 
occult can, for some people, be very subjective. Some people have definitions. There is no agreed upon definition in this area, nor is there a legal definition. The question ultimately for me is like, what do you want to know and how can we help you? Now, if I say to you, it's not a cult, are you now as wipe your hands and the situation is okay? And people will say, no, no, because I'm concerned about, okay, let's deal with those concerns. There's an expression I use, kind of a phrase rather, you say, you can have a good experience in a so-called bad group and a bad experience in a so-called good group. So the question is not, is it a cult, yes or no, but you're concerned about X or Y situation. How can we help you and how can we deal with it? He does say that the word can have real value for some people, especially for people who have left a bad situation. Now, for former members coming out of a group, the framing the experience as being in a cult because of the negative connotations can help them deal with more of their experiences and recognize this was not a positive experience by any stretch. And also, you get a number of other people who are coming together as former members who can share experiences. And he says that even people in the exact same group can have radically different experiences, making things even harder to define. In a movement where women may be sexually abused, men may have a great time and it may not be affected by the experience. Children may be harmed in some movements, whereas the parents may not have the same experiences. So depending who you are and at what level you are in the organization, if you're higher up, you're not likely to be as harmed as somebody maybe on the lower rungs who's got to be carrying out all the dough jobs and having to be totally subservient to leadership. And one thing he's found especially important over the years is actually being in touch with these groups, not just to understand them better, but because sometimes the direct approach is the best way to help someone in trouble. Because often if people have a problem, what's the easiest way to deal with it? You know, I'll go to the media, I'll go, so why don't you just approach them and ask them, let's say, in case X, I want my mighty back. Does it work? Come to us. You know, I've approached organizations and said, can, you know, you owe them, here's the material. And it's resolved because many groups do not need negative publicity when it's very clear they're in the wrong. And at the same time, if there's a way to help out situations, why not try the easy route first? Doesn't hurt. And so having that kind of contact, I think, can be beneficial. Doesn't mean I believe that they're lily white. I don't know if there's any organization that's lily white to begin with. The reality is, is that, you know, abuse of authority and imbalance of power leads to a potential risk of the abuse of power. And that goes on within traditional, non-traditional, marginal, etc. movements, except that within some of the non-traditional and marginal movements, there's less controls. And he says that the media is responsible for a lot of misunderstandings about these movements. But the reality, and I understand it, like when it comes out in the media, it's easier to say it's a cult, yes or no, rather than getting into a 15 or 20 minute discussion on what's the structure of the movement, how does it function, what are the issues involved with it. So it becomes a thought, you know, stopping almost cliche, where you don't think about it anymore because somebody said it's a cult, so it's bad. But then the question is, what's bad about it? Well, they brainwash people. What do you mean they brainwash people? What does that mean? And are you saying everybody is affected in the same way? It's too simplistic in my opinion. Michael sees real value to what both sides of the debate bring to the table. It's not necessarily negative if you're advocating for victims. 
nor is it necessarily negative you're advocating for freedom of religion and protecting the rights of organizations. We may be asking different questions. The days of kidnapping people to deprogram them are long gone. Most exit counselors, as they call themselves nowadays, adhere to strict ethical guidelines and often have backgrounds in psychology or social work. And Michael says that there are more people than ever who feel trapped in bad situations and who need help. InfoCult runs a number of support groups for people who have left these groups. It's basically a chance for people to talk about their experiences and recognize that many of them have gone through similar experiences, even in different groups. And I think it breaks the sense of aloneness, being I'm the only one. And then they realize, you know, a lot of other people have gone through the same things. With the rash of true crime documentaries and podcasts, it seems certain that the cult wars will rage on for years to come. But Michael, who's been in the trenches for decades, he can't afford to take a side. He has to live in all of the messy nuance. Part of it is this kind of, is focus on, can you understand another person's perspective and beliefs? Understand does not mean you agree but it can be helpful in terms of deciding on what you want to do you know, and how you want to proceed. And you know, if you've got a simple answer to this issue, yeah, yeah, sure, I'd like to hear it. <laughs> but uh, my experience is kind of demonstrated it's not that simple, it's not that clear cut. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Stephen Kent, Susan Palmer, Massimo Introvigne, Josh Freed, Simon Lucen, and many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me, Noor Azria, and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Annette Edgefor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglesi, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything else, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. 
That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.